Welcome to the poor. So glad you're here. Um, just really thankful to be here this morning with you. Um, if you are a first-time guest, uh, we especially want to say thank you and wel- welcome to you. And we hope that you feel, as we do, that this is um, this is a family, and, and it, we f- hope that you have felt welcomed. And uh, so we, we just want to say a special welcome to you, and we're so glad you're here um, with us. Um, just a shout out, quick shout out to um, our our media and our tech people back there. You, would you guys let them know how much you appreciate them? You may say, well, I really don't know how much I appreciate them because I really never really noticed. Well, that's because things run smoothly usually. And when things run smoothly, you don't know they're back there. And when, when something goes wrong, everybody kind of just, you know, turns. And, but they do a fantastic job of, of making us sound good and, and the visuals and, and Josh with, uh, with bumpers and, and videos and things of that nature. So really, really thankful for their ministry to us. So we're going to jump right in because we have a lot to do. Um, we're in week four. This is the final week of our series we're calling Toxic Theology. And I, I believe that this has been an amazing series uh, for me personally and very timely, amen, for what's going on in our world. And I'm so honored to share my heart with you this morning as we wrap this series up. And uh, of course, we're going to celebrate new life in Christ through um, the this, this sacrament of baptism this morning. Uh, nothing says new life in Christ like baptisms, amen? I've always heard that when there are baptisms going on, that church is growing and alive, amen? Uh, we love that, uh, so we want to champion that. We want to see them, love to see them every Sunday, but it's not possible, so we kind of do, every now and again, we'll have a baptism Sunday where uh, several uh, step into the waters and, and we get to celebrate with them, and we got some people joining this morning as well, so uh, amazing time to be here today. So, What's been going, what we've been doing is we've been looking at some beliefs that have become increasingly popular in, in our culture and have been widely accepted, even by many Christians, so to speak, that perhaps were born on social media or born out of uh, a blog post or some sort of platform or maybe a well-meaning conversation that have somehow made its way into the church. But in reality, these things are dangerous and deceptive. And these beliefs are, I believe, are hurting the church, capital C, not just this church on this corner, but all churches, the church, the, the body of Christ. So to, to go back, we've got to define what toxic theology means. So the first uh, term in that, that we want to make the emphasis is theology, which is the study of God. All right? Theology means the study of God. And toxic, which comes from the, the term toxin, means a poisonous substance that causes illness or disease when introduced to the body. So the definition of toxic theology for our purpose in this series is a false teaching about things of God or a bad practice in the name of God that causes spiritual illness. It's a pretty good definition. Last week, uh, we addressed the toxic set of beliefs known as moralistic therapeutic deism, if you were here or weren't here, um, going back to what that means, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty new thing in Christian culture. And it's the Barna group who does Christian surveys and statistics says that it is the dominant religious view in America today. The dominant religious view in America today is moralistic therapeutic deism. It looks a lot like Christianity 
but there are some, some problems. Here's what moralistic therapeutic deism means. Number one, there is a God, acknowledging that there is a God. Problem number one with that is, you know, Satan knows that there's a God. Believing that there's a God is not enough. So the, the first belief is there is a God. Second belief is um, I'm to be a good moral person. Nothing wrong with that. Doesn't the Bible teach that we should be good, morally upright people? Yes, absolutely. So that's not all bad. The first two, we're tracking. We do believe that there's a God, and we do believe we ought to be good moral people. But here's where it starts to get dodgy. The third one is uh, God wants me to be happy, comfortable, well-adjusted, healthy, wealthy, etc. Of course God wants joy in your life. Of course. But joy and happiness are two different things. From, from the best I can tell, everyone who followed Jesus in, in my Bible went through really difficult things. Made them less than happy, but full of joy. So, so somehow this has crept into our Christianity that God wants me to be happy. When what he really wants is you to trade happiness for joy. And the, and the last thing is, the last two things is, is, is the fourth one is God uh, doesn't necessarily need to be involved, super involved in my life, except for when there's a crisis. Okay? And the last one is what's going to bleed over into today, which is that if I am all those things, if I believe that there's God, I'm a good moral person, I don't mess up too bad, then somehow, at the end of everything, I'm going to make my way to heaven somehow. When I get to the pearly gates, St. Peter's going to look, look at me and say, why should I let you in? And I'm going to name all these things I did, and he's going to let me in. Folks, that is a terrible theology. That is not the truth. And yet, we know the truth, most of us in here. We've heard it all our lives. And if you grew up in a Bible-believing church, you know. And yet, somehow, we still cling to some of these things. Moral uprightness equals righteousness. It does not. The Bible says, there is none righteous. No, not one. We haven't even gotten to the sermon yet. i got to get to it. Y'all, I'm going to open up a can of worms here this morning. And pray for me, and I pray for you. Today we're going to look at one of these other beliefs that I consider to be deceptive, and I hope you will too. People have latched on to, especially in the church in recent years, and I've got to warn you, it's like, like I, told, I told my wife and I told Shannon, I said, it might be the most difficult sermon I've ever preached. Now, this could be an entire series. This could be two months worth of, of, of conversations, what we're going to discuss, so we need, to, we need to do it in 20 minutes, in 15 minutes. The toxic theological belief that we want to address today is called universalism. Universalism. This belief is a, or set of beliefs, has been around for a long time. I'm talking like hundreds of years. In fact, it started to infiltrate the Christian church in the early days of the church, back in the first century, when people called Gnostics were around, and they were, what they were doing is they were taking uh, what they saw in nature, and then they were taking the logic of the human mind, and they were mixing it with Scripture, and you had this jumbled, jarbled, distorted mess of a, of a doctrine. 
So there's, there's two types of, there's many varying types of universalism. We want to focus on one, but I want to mention the, the main two. The first one is classic cultural universalism, and that says that all roads lead to God. All roads, no matter what religion you're part of, all roads lead to God. Okay? All religions end up in the same place. We all sort of worship the same God. Christian universalism is what we're going to focus on today. And that one is sort of a derivative. And it says, this is a newer manifestation. And it's kind of been around for only the last 40, 50 years or so. 50, 60 years. And basically it says, in the end, no matter what I do, what you do and I do in this life, everyone sort of ends up in heaven. Everyone will end up being saved. Many people, even so-called Christians, are saying, surely a good God won't send anyone to hell. Um, i got to warn you, I'm, I'm going to try to tread as lightly as I can. But folks, sometimes the Bible speaks, and it really doesn't matter whether we take it offensively or, or not. It is what it is. My prayer is that you won't take offense, that you'll understand that that's the Holy Spirit hopefully doing his job in your heart and mind. It certainly did me. This morning I want to zoom in on the latter, which is view, it's just cultural, it's Christian universalism. And because I believe it's a real problem in our churches. Again, like I mentioned last week, many, even in our current denomination in in the United Methodist Church, Even pastors and bishops and high-up leaders are rejecting the exclusivity of Christ as Jesus being the only way of salvation. They're out and out rejecting what Scripture says. And so we're in the process of praying over, uh, you know, disaffiliation and and where to go as as our own church. Because guess what? I mean, I don't know if you know this about us, but it doesn't really matter what denomination we're going to be part of. Scripture will be our foundation and our authority. It will. It will. I can promise you. And Shannon or I, we, we, and Kristen and Josh, when we teach and we preach and we, we, we pour in, we disciple, we want Scripture to be the foundation. The truth is the truth, whether I believe it or not. So, the soapbox off the soapbox. What I believe is happening in our churches is a total disregard for Scripture, the authority therein, the supremacy of Christ, meaning He's the focus, not us, and in some cases, an out and out rejection of Jesus as the one Savior, the true Savior. That's not just that's not just error. That's demonic. There is, there is a spiritual element to that. In 2011, former evangelical pastor, author, Rob Bell, released a book entitled Love Wins. This book sent shockwaves throughout the Christian community because Rob Bell was a trusted pastor, preacher, teacher, author. He made these great videos that I used to use in my youth group, NUMA. They're great videos, fantastic illustrations. And he was a solid guy. And I'm not sure what happened, but he made a statement in this book that was just revolutionary, to say the least. And the statement was, 
in essence, that hell could not exist. Hell does not exist. And the rationale, in short, was that how can a good God, that we, if we believe God is good, how can a place so bad exist? And you, and listen, you might be there. And if you are, I don't want you to shut me out. Because this is not, oh, oh my gosh, another sermon on hell. Lord Jesus, help me get through the next 10 minutes. Please don't shut this out. Please don't shut this out. Jesus preached and taught on the reality of hell more than any other subject. Jesus referred to hell, the place, as the everlasting and unquenchable fire and sometimes the lake of fire. So if Jesus talked about it, we probably should too, amen? And if the subject of hell was, was important to Jesus, I think it should be as, to us as well. So now that we've established that, I, 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 we believe in a literal place called hell. There is good news coming, by the way. I, I want to I share with you two lies of this Christian universalism that's infiltrated our churches. Lie number one, there is no real eternal there are no real eternal consequences for our moral choices in this life. There are no real eternal consequences for the choices we make in this life. The fact is, every human who's ever lived will stand before God one day and give an account for what they do and what they say. You and me. Those who accept Christ and his grace and love for them and his, it, the blood of Jesus that covers sin... What he's done for them will be judged also, but that judgment will look a lot different in light of Jesus' shed blood on that cross for you. And that is good news. In Matthew 25, Jesus is teaching, of course, a lot of times he's spoken parables, and um, he tells this parable, uh, a bridegroom coming and, and the, the ten uh, maidens who are waiting on the bridegroom to show up and the oil and the lamps and stuff. And then he goes down and he starts speaking about final judgment. And that word judgment is kind of like a, it's, it, we just completely switch off soon we hear, oh, it's negative. We don't need to be negative in our churches. It's not negative. It's, it's, it's truth that leads to, it, 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 it's bad news that leads to good news. <laughs> Does that make sense? And in verse 31 in Matthew 25, I want to read it. Let's read it together. It'll be on the screen if you didn't bring a Bible. If you have a Bible app, those are very, very, uh, the Bible app is very, very free. (laughs) We need to make a t-shirt that says that. Verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And he goes on to make a series of statements, for I was hungry and you clothed me and I was sick and you took care of me. And all, we, a lot of us have heard this before. And the righteous, verse 37, will answer him, saying, Lord, when did, you, when did I see you hungry and feed you? When did I see you thirsty and, and give you something to drink and all this stuff? And then Jesus says, verse 40, he says, Truly I say unto you, as you do it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you have done it to me. Moral choices have eternal consequences. 
Then he says, verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared not for you, but for the devil and his people. For when I was hungry, you gave me no food. And he goes on and he says the same thing to them, but the opposite. At the end, he says, truly I say to you, verse 45, he says, truly I say to you, as you, do, as you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will inherit eternal life. So Jesus here is preaching and he's warning people. It's a warning. It's an out and out warning of the reality of eternity and the day that we all stand before God and give an account for our lives. That's coming. That's coming. By the way, you could be a heartbeat away. We're not promised anything other than right now. And on the surface, it sounds like Jesus is saying that it's all about what you do. On the surface, if you read this, just on the surface, out of context, if you proof text this, as Shannon would say, if you proof text it, it would seem that it's all about just what you do. Yes, our moral choices have consequences and will lead to death and eternal judgment apart, apart from the saving work of Jesus in our lives. In reality, this passage stands as motivation to live as Christ in a world that does not believe in him as a true Christian, as a true Christ follower. But it's pretty scary and sobering, isn't it? It's a scary passage. Everyone's standing before God, all the stuff in our lives exposed. We're not really sure if anyone's watching this. We just know that it's us and God who cares. It's still, it's still an awful sobering moment, Right? And we're all going to do that. There's no going back in the past and cleaning up our lives. It is what it is. But for those who know Jesus as Savior, who have accepted his grace and repented of their sin, that judgment is going to look a lot different for you than it would be someone who's totally rejected Christ as their Savior. Ultimately, we'll answer for every word, action, but, fi- but the final reward will be eternity with Christ and with each other. Or... A rejection of Christ means eternity separated from him. And the worst part about hell is not the heat. It's being separated from God with no chance of redemption forever. Let's not get it twisted there. So lie number one, there's no real consequence for the things we do in this life. Number, lie number two, everyone, regardless of moral choice or standing with Christ will eventually make it to heaven. Lie number two. Just like all roads don't lead to heaven, the reality is everyone won't be there. Jesus said clearly in Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and death. But those who enter by it are many, For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. It's pretty clear. It's pretty clear. Those who accept Christ and what he's done for them will be judged also. But that final judgment will be in light of the covering and the shed blood of Jesus. The precious blood of Jesus. That's good news. 1 Peter 
Chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, that all should reach repentance. This is the heart of God for humanity. If you ever wondered whether Christ died for some or not, there it is. He died for all humanity. Knowing, this is the thing that blows my mind, knowing that a relative few in the, in the history of humanity will truly accept. Relative few. How is it with your soul, as John Wesley would say? How is it with your soul? By the way, I just looked it up. I was just curious to see where John Wesley, who's, who founded our, our current denomination that we're in, he preached on hell a lot. A whole bunch. I was encouraged by that. I was like, bring it. I'm reading it. I'm going to bring it. So here we see the heart of God in 1 Peter 3 towards humanity. And God's desire is for all people to repent of their sin and turn to him. Here's one more lie I want to tackle this morning as we wrap up. The lie is this. God sends people to hell if they reject Christ as Savior. God does not send anyone to hell. In reality, our sin sends us there. God, it is God's will that all should come to repentance. Our, we, God doesn't send anyone there. Hell wasn't made for you. Hell was made for the devil and his people, his angels. And yet, because God is a holy and righteous God whose wrath was poured out on Jesus on that cross, and he hates sin so much, that sin cannot be where God is. So unrepentant sin cannot be anywhere near God, in God's presence at all. And so here we have fallen humanity wrestling with whether even God exists or not, wrestling with hell as a, as a real place. And the fact of the matter is, if, if we reject Christ and his atoning sacrifice for us, that's, that's where we're going. That's where we're headed. You see, hell isn't, hell isn't, un, isn't unfair. Hell is not an unfair idea. Many would say in the church, hell is unfair. Why would a, how could a good God do that? You know, the problem with that statement is the focus in that saying that is on you, is on me. It's like what kind of what I, I I'm not bad enough to deserve that. And the fact of the matter is, we are, none of us are righteous. None of us are deserving of the other side of this equation, which is heaven. None of us are deserving. None deserve it. I don't deserve it. You don't. Billy Graham doesn't deserve it. If he don't deserve it, we don't. The only one righteous ever was Jesus. So we deserve anything but eternity with Christ. And yet, God has made a way for that to happen for me and you. In God's mercy, everybody say, but God. But God. But God. In his mercy, in his grace, in his love for us, he's made a way. You and, I, you and I deserve judgment. We don't deserve anything good from God. God owes us nothing. And yet God, but God, in his great love has made a way. He's paved a, a, a path, a highway in the desert for mankind to be redeemed. For maybe some of you in here today might be the day of salvation. Ephesians 2 4 through 9. This is, this is part of what I was reading when I gave my heart to Jesus at 16. 
It says in verse 4, but Jesus being rich in mercy, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us. In Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not the result of works. So that no one can boast about it. I'm not here this morning to, to change your mind. On, on make, or make a case for hell. It's way bigger than that. Hell exists whether we believe it or not. Okay. This morning my intent is to make a case. For the gospel. The whole gospel. My intent is to make a case for the good news of Jesus and what he did for you and me on that cross. The reality of hell does not in any way diminish the good news of the gospel. Not one bit. In fact, it only makes it better. It only makes it that much better. It's like when people say, I've got good news and bad news. What do you say you want first, usually? Bad news? Who said good news? No, no. No, if I can endure the bad news, I, I want to go from here to here. I don't want to go the other way around. Like, give me the bad news first, right? Amen? Give me the bad news. Not good, good news and bad news. We kind of say it backwards, but we want the bad news first. Depending on your level of bad news, the good news is a welcome sight. And in this instance, the good news of Jesus Christ is made away, is even better in light of the bad news that precedes it. We are dead in sin without hope. But God. But God. See that? Give me the bad news first. Hell does exist. But you don't have to go there. And your friends and family desperately need to see a picture of Christ in this world so that they don't go there. This, and the reason I'm so animated is because for so long our churches have hid, hid and cowered by, in, in not preached the entire gospel. We want people to feel good. And I promise you, if you see the whole gospel this morning, you'll leave here encouraged, with, uh, full of hope and full of joy. I promise you. The reality of hell should motivate us in three ways. If you're a note taker, here they are. It should motivate us, number one, to live holy and righteous lives in front of people. Not perfect. Can't do that. Not because our works save us, but because God hates sin and we should too. So it should motivate us. It's, good. It's, it's a good motivator. Number two, it should motivate us in our hearts to hate sin like God does. Not just the sin of the world, but my sin specifically. Do you hate your sin, your own sin? Are you embarrassed by it? Are you ashamed by it? Does it break you down? Does it hurt your heart? Oh, it should. It should. It, my sin should break me. And then what do I do? I don't wallow in my brokenness. I run to the cross. Amen? I run to the cross. I run back to the cross. I heard a preacher say to me one time, Justin, you can preach hell as long as the cross is in view. If, if we can, you can preach about anything and people won't get offended as long as the cross is the focus. 
I mean, people might get offended, but if our hearts are truly focused on what happened there, then the bad news, the good news that precedes the bad news is so much greater, amen? Like, that's the focus. And, and he, you know, he said to me, as a, young, as a young preacher, you know, 16, and I'm like, yeah, I'm preaching. He's like, preach the cross. Just preach the cross. Paul said that as well. To hate sin even a fraction as much as God does, man, this world will be different. If we begin to fight, wrestle with, run away from, run away from sin, repent of sin like we should, our lives will be transformed and be a shining testimony to this world and our friends and our family. Number three, the last thing this, that belief in, in, in heaven and hell simultaneously, mercy and judgment, is that it should motivate us to share Jesus with our family and friends who we know without trusting in Christ are headed to a place called hell. When's the last time your heart broke for a lost family member? Your heart broke for a colleague? Your heart broke for a sister or a brother? Father, mother, son. I know there's some mothers in here that are praying for their sons daily to come back to Jesus, to run back. That right there will change the world. And so back to Rob Bell and his book, Love Wins. Love absolutely wins in the end but not in the way that Rob Bell meant it. The incredible love of Jesus and his finished work on that cross will one day be on full display for all eternity. What a great day. And we, because of that news, we get to be a part of that forever. Don't you want your friends and family members and people in your lives to know and experience the goodness of God? Don't you want them to spend eternity with you in heaven? This is not just about heaven and hell and and praying some magic prayer. The reality is, the reality is, there are people that are lost that don't know they're lost. There might be someone in here that thinks because they went to church their whole life and they're a pretty good moral person that they're good, good to go. They've checked those boxes. I was that person for a long, long time. It's not going to get me there. It's not going to get me there. That's not redemption. That's not salvation. I want to call the band back up as we, as we uh, get ready to worship again. I want to I wanna leave you with, with this, and um, I want you to bow your heads real quick. I in no way am here just simply to convince you of a physical place called hell. You know, when I was four, 13 or 14, I was at a youth camp, and some guy was spitting and ranting and raving up there on stage about hell. And if, 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 uh, if I didn't repent right then and there, and I were to die in my sleep, I was going to go to hell. That scared the mess out of me. And no one is ever scared into surrendering to Christ, by the way. No one. It's not what it's about. But God, in his great love and mercy for me, when I was dead in my sin, when I was dead in my sin, he made a way for me to be made right with God. That is the gospel. Heavenly Father, we're coming to you now, God, in, in, in humility and contriteness. God, there, all of us are susceptible to believe lies that culture tells us. There are so-called experts and theologians and pastors and preachers and teachers that are not preaching truth. We want to align ourselves with the truth of your word this morning. Not because hell is a scary place. It is scary. But your love is so much better.
My prayer is that today, Holy Spirit, that you would flood our hearts with the goodness of God. Understand that God made a way when there was no way. And God, you did not have to. You weren't, we did not strong arm you into going to the cross. Jesus, you gave your life up freely. And because of that, we can surrender totally and say, God, we trust you. We're sorry for our sin. We repent of it. We turn away from it. We reject universalism that says all roads lead to God. And we accept what happened on the cross exclusively. That's the only way. We accept your way because your way is so much better. Father, our prayer is that as we go into worship, we celebrate the life you gave, that incredible exchange of life from death to life. God, that we'd be moved by it. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship.